0: Welcome back to our series on the Minor Prophets. Today I want us to look at the man and the message known as, I, known as Amos. Uh, this series, is uh, as we know it, is called The Boys of Summer. Amos is the first of the prophets that spoke to Israel and Judah in the 8th century B.C. Now, uh, his contemporaries... Amos was first followed in, in Israel by Hosea. We've already looked at the life and the message of Hosea. And then in Judah during this time were the prophets Micah and Isaiah. And so, uh, these are significant, um, stories that, that these prophets tell. Um, Amos, unlike, unlike some of the prophets, give us real, uh, a, a real clear historical moment to attach his message to. We saw Joel last week and I talked about how Joel was was one of the prophets that's really hard to place because he gives us not only no biographical information, but no historical information to, to find a time frame. Amos, on the other hand, in the very first verse says this, the words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. Now we'll talk about that in just a minute. What he saw regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash king of Israel 2 years before the earthquake now if we put the two reigns of these kings the king of Judah and the king of Israel together we have about a 40 year span where they overlapped two long reigning kings and so we know that Amos was in that time but he but he mentions 2 years before the earthquake there was an earthquake that was historically significant because it was major enough to, uh, to to be recorded in in ancient records. The earthquake that in that part of the world that was uh, significant happened about seven sixty B.C. Two years before that would put Amos squarely in the middle of that forty year range of the two kings that he mentions, and and, and have his ministry starting about. 762 BC. Now what's significant about that is um, Israel is destroyed by the Assyrian Empire and carried off in 722 BC. So Amos is about one generation prior to the judgment that he speaks about. And so his message of coming judgment on Israel uh, is, is not only... Meant to move Israel back to a place of repentance in their relationship with God, uh, but he's he's in 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 historical time. Uh, his message is really sort of a last minute appeal uh, given to the people of God. Uh, he parallels Hosea. Hosea's message was the message of God's faithful love, and uh, he lived that out by by his marriage to a prostitute. Amos is is a different kind of prophet than Hosea. Uh, it tells us in chapter in, in chapter one, verse one, that he was from Tekoa. The first thing you need to know about Tekoa is it was not in Israel; it was in Judah. It was not only in Judah; it was south of Jerusalem, uh, a little bit, a little distance, which put it squarely on the on the border of Judah, um, literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, if you want to describe a messenger from God. Coming out of the desert, coming from nowhere, it's Amos. Amos comes from Tokoah. Not only do we find out from this uh in, in this book that he is a sheep breeder, um he tells us in chapter seven uh specifically that he is not a priest or a prophet. He's just a layperson. In fact, in chapter seven he gets some um He gets some criticism, some opposition because of the message to Israel that he's delivering. And uh, let's just start there in chapter 7. We'll go back and pick up the story, but I want you to to see his background. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, there is a priest from Bethel. Now, Bethel, Gilgal, there are several places, Dan was one of them. There were several places in Israel that were centers of worship to false gods, Israel had fallen so far away the kings didn't want the Israelites traveling down across the border into Judah to go to the Temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem so they set up com- competing temples at different locations uh, across Israel and that was always in every prophet that was one of God's strongest points of contention with Israel was for convenience sake and out of political rivalry they substituted false worship to false gods in false temples uh, for the requirements of the covenant that God asked of Israel to do in the temple in Jerusalem. So there's a priest from Bethel. His name is Amaziah. Verse 10, chapter 7. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you right here in the house of Israel. The land cannot endure all his words. For Amos has said this, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go into exile from its homeland. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go away, you seer. Flee to the land of Judah. Earn your living and give your prophecies there. But don't ever prophesy at Bethel again, for it is the king's sanctuary and a royal temple. He says, basically, go back to where you came from. You want to spout prophecies? You want to pretend to be delivering a word from, from, from Judah's God? Go back to Judah and do that. Verse 14. So Am- Amos answered Amaziah, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. Rather, I was a herdsman and I took care of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, what's interesting is Amos was bivocational. He had two jobs. They were both ranked at the very bottom of the social order in the culture of his day. He was a shepherd. He's called, in, in, the, in verse 1, a sheep breeder. And in, in chapter 7, he, he it talks about him being a follower of the flocks. He was a shepherd. Remember the Christmas story, how... Uh, Jesus appeared, Jesus was born in a stable, and shepherds were the first ones ushered in to see that child. The reason they were able to see him in a stable was because uh, they could go in a stable, but they were considered to be unclean. They dealt with uh, unclean animals like donkeys. Um, they dealt with animals that had died. They were per- perpetually involved with the messier parts of animal husbandry, they were unclean. And as such, they they filled really the untouchable lower caste within society. If there was anybody that made less money and had less stature than a shepherd, it was a fig picker, uh, actually a, a fig pincher, he says he, he works with sycamores. In the, in the ancient world, they would, they would um, harvest the fruit of the sycamore tree. But in order for it to fully uh, ripen, they, ha- they had people. These were the, this was the lowest level of, uh, of, of unskilled labor in the land. They would climb up into the trees and they would pinch the figs and break the surface, break the, the outer cover. So that the fig could then be exposed uh, to sunlight and it would and it would fully ripen. So what Amos is telling us is, they, uh, Amaziah says, go back and be a prophet in your own country. We don't want you here. And Amos's answer is, I, I'm not a prophet. I'm not even the son of a prophet. I've got no credentials. I've got no seminary degree. I've got nothing. I was a shepherd and a fig pincher. But God called me and he said, go speak my word to Israel. I love Amos' background because it's one of those reminders in the Word of God of how effectively God makes use of lay people, non-ordained, regular folk. You see, it's always a temptation in every generation to have this separation between the clergy and the laity. To have this idea that I, I had, a, I had someone tell me in a, in a previous church years ago. uh He wanted me to come see his wife in the, in the hospital, and and I said, "Well, has anybody seen her?" And he said, "Oh, yeah, yeah. Her Sunday school teacher's been there. Her deacon's been there. A couple of the staff members have been there." And I said, "Well, good. Well, I, I haven't been able to get there, but I'll, I'll try and stop by." And he said, "Well, I really wish you would because because your prayers your prayers are more effective than theirs." Yeah, no, no. There's not some sort of special standing. There's, we we can't have a priest complex. Amos is a perfect example that God uses anybody who listens to His call, who obeys His word, who responds to His invitation to serve the kingdom and advance the cause. Amos was as plain and ordinary as any character in the entire Bible. And yet we're going to find out that he was a powerful witness for the cause of Christ. The ninth century, the, the century really before Amos makes his appearance, was a century where Israel was dominated by uh, Aram, or, or what we know today as Syria, uh, often referred to as Damascus, which was the capital city. Um, that oppression from, from Syria uh, really disappeared and the story of that is in 2nd kings chapter 13 when king jehoahaz was on the throne and he prayed to god and and the arameans uh really lost their hold on israel now assyria eventually crushes damascus and defeats uh, defeats the arameans uh, in about 802 bc but they had a series of weak kings that followed that. So even though Assyria was becoming the superpower of that of that generation, uh, there was about a forty-year span where they really didn't get out much. And so, from 802 BC, when Assyria takes takes the Arameans out of the picture, there's about a, 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 a an eighty-year gap. Where Israel is really pretty much left alone, and in that period where they don 't really have any external oppressors, they prosper. I mean the economy takes off, the population booms, religious activity just skyrockets, the temples are busy, the sacrifices are are rocking and rolling and it 's in that it 's in that atmosphere of of, uh, of really um, sp- uh, economic and political prosperity that Amos steps up because his message is going to be, look at all the ways, because God has released you from your external oppression, look at all the ways that you've been blessed, all the ways that you've prospered. In fact, your religious activity has has just taken off. It's off the charts. But here's the thing. Your religious activity hasn't had a corresponding attitude of repentance and submission in your hearts. You're going through the motions. Man, the temple services are full of people. It's standing room only. But nobody's actually walking with God. They're just playing the game of being respectable. They're just going through the motions of of worship and, and sacrifice. And and frankly, a lot of them are doing it at, at temples that are, are worshiping gods that are not even the true God. And so this extended period of prosperity and the accompanying increase in religious activity, uh, it saw constant streams of worshipers to the temp, to the various temples, constant sacrifices of animals. And yet Amos is going to talk about God's disapproval of all that because he's looking at their heart and and he wants them to stay away from this false worship, and make their way back to who they really are as the chosen people of God. The period had great um, economic and political prosperity, but it had moral and spiritual decline, and accordingly it had a lot of social upheaval. You should read the, the book of Amos start to finish, because what you'll find if you're paying attention is that Amos has a real message for the United States of America in 2020, highly prosperous, booming economy, uh, political vitality. I mean, that is a lot of people engaged and involved, but social anarchy. Because they're so affluent, because they have the ability to have time to do things, uh, the rich begin to ignore the poor. Uh the gap between rich and poor is getting uh wider. Uh not only is there a natural gap from the way the, the, the culture is structured, uh, but the rich begin to actually game the system to take advantage of the poor. We'll see we'll see some of those charges made uh in this book. And and all of it was God saying, Uh, this is this is not who I made you to be. I want you to um to find your way home. Amos Amos had a strong sense of God's call to prophesy, and that call was the enabling force of his entire ministry. And I think that's an important point because um, he had so much opposition, not just as an outsider from Judah as he preached to Israel, but opposition because Israel didn't want to hear his message. And frankly, if Amos doesn't have a, 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 a solid grasp on God's call, it would have been very easy to say, I don't need this. I'll, I'll just go back home. I had a nice, quiet life. Uh, I was content. I'll just go back to what, to what I know. And yet he put himself in the line of fire because God had called him. The themes of this book, and we're not going to look at them really in, in great detail, but um, the themes of this book, theologically, are the sovereignty of the Lord. In fact, he's going to make the very first point he's going to make is that God is not just sovereign over Judah. He's not just sovereign over Israel, He's sovereign over all the nations of the earth. Uh, his message is going to have the end of Israel, the coming exile that will uh, eventually be uh, by the Assyrian Empire. God's judgment on sin, the day of the Lord. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Remember, Joel talked about the day of the Lord as the day of coming judgment. Um, Israel had fallen into the trap, and this happens a lot of times when you, when you think you're a privileged people, you've been chosen, and so with that chosenness goes certain privileges. Israel had fallen into the trap of thinking that the day of the Lord was going to be the day that they were vindicated and, and everything would be easy for them, and all the other nations of the world were going to be judged. Well, Amos has got a real message about their misconception of the day of the Lord. Also, his book talks about Israel's future restoration. And all the way through the prophets, no matter what the message of judgment is, there's always God's word of at least a remnant that will be restored. And the reason for that is because no matter what Israel did, no matter what Judah did, God was not going to be frustrated in the unfolding drama of redemption that would eventually bring the Messiah in the fullness of time and make salvation, make forgiveness, make justification available for every man, woman, and child uh, on the earth. So, let's look at this, uh, this, this book in the first chapter. The first chapter, really the first two chapters are a series of speeches. Amos shows up in Israel... And the way he develops a crowd, the way he gains a hearing, is he begins to preach judgment. But not judgment at Israel. He begins to talk about the surrounding nations. Now, because Israel uh, already felt like God was going to come in a day of judgment and judge the surrounding nations, because they already had um, a real attitude about the unworthiness of the nations that were around them, uh, Amos got a crowd pretty quickly, and they loved the messages, He's got a series of messages here. And if you look on a map of, of the Old Testament, what you'll find is that the, that Amos sort of begins with, with the countries around Israel and he, and, and he goes all the way around. He, he circles Israel. He's just hitting each neighbor as he goes around Israel. Eventually he's going to hit Judah, and they loved that. Judah was their sister nation uh, divided after Solomon's reign. But, but there was a real rivalry between Israel and Judah. So what happens is he's going to give eight oracles or, or announcements about God's judgment on the nations. Three of those announcements will be Israel's neighbors that are not related to Israel. Then, then three of them are about Israel's neighbors that are related. Now we don't have time to go back into the book of Genesis, but we could trace three of these nations back uh, to, to founding fathers that were related to Abraham. And so, uh, while they're not in the line that led to Israel and Judah, they are, they are sort of, uh, cousins, if you will. Then the seventh oracle will be to Judah. By this time, the crowd is going to be cheering. They love it. And that's when the tables are turned. Let's look at this real quickly. Uh, verse two, Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion. And makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. I love this phrase because there are a couple of places in the book of, of Amos where he speaks about the Lord roaring. Um, Israel was a, was a nation that was busy in religious activity. But nobody seemed to be able to actually hear God. Their ears weren't tuned for it. The word here is the word that is used to describe a lion as he's about to pounce on his prey. What happens is lions are typically uh, uh creatures of stealth. In the tall grass plains of, of Africa, they will make their way toward uh, uh, a herd. And, and right at the last minute, there will be this deep, guttural, sh- sh- stunning... Roar. Well, what the roar does is for a split second, it catches the prey off guard and paralyzes them. They're like, what was that? And in that split second, the lions pounce. So the image of God as a lion who's roaring has with it this connotation that he can't be heard, but he's sneaking up on you. Nobody's paying attention. But when he roars, it's too late to get away. I also find it interesting that, that uh, Amos uses the image of God as a lion. We can go to uh, to Peter's writings in the New Testament and he uses the image of of Satan as a lion. Never forget this difference. Satan is a lion on a leash. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Amos speaks about Yahweh roaring His Word. Listen, never never view this as two equal lions in a, a life and death struggle. The Lion of Judah uh, is not challenged by the pretender on a leash. Here we go. The first oracle judgment on Israel's neighbors. Verse three, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus. Damascus was the capital city of Aram or what we now call Syria for three crimes, even four. that's a a formula that was used to just say that God has a complete list for three crimes, even four. he's saying he has a complete list of charges to to bring against um, against this nation. "...because they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. Therefore I will send fire against Haziel's palace, and, I, and it will consume Ben-Hadad's citadels. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will cut off the ruler from the valley of Aven, and the one who wields the scepter of Beth-Eden, the people of Aram, will be exiled to Kir. The Lord has spoken." He says, "...I have some charges against them, but primarily the first charge against, uh, uh, against, Ammon, uh, against uh, the Arameans... Is that they, uh, as they were a frequent and powerful enemy of Israel, but it says they threshed Gilead with iron sledges. In other words, they broke the gates down and allowed uh, an Israelite city to be overrun by invaders. Uh, it implies war crimes. That is the kind of slaughter of innocents that was commonplace among the pagan tribes of the ancient world where, um, where those who were not military combatants would have been destroyed. This is not a covenant charge because the Arameans were not a covenant people with God. This is simply God as the sovereign Lord of the nations. This is God saying, I will hold this nation accountable for crimes against humanity. They have conducted themselves in a way that is unacceptable with the sacredness of human life. Verse 6, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Gaza for three crimes, even four. Now, Gaza was one of the capital cities of Philistia, uh, the land of the Philistines. He's going to tell them they have no hope for their survival. Look at this. Uh, For three crimes, even four, because they exiled a whole community, handing them over to Edom. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Gaza, and it will consume its citadels. I will cut off the ruler from Ashdod, and the one who wields the scepter from Ashkelon. I will also turn my hand from Ekron, and the remainder of the Philistines will perish. The Lord God has spoken. There were five major cities in the area of the Philistines, Amos mentions four of them by name in this passage, basically making the case that God will destroy that nation. They have no hope for survival. Now, what was their crime? Again, it was a crime against humanity because they raided an Israelite city and took the population of that city and traded them to the Edomites. Now, we're going to get to Edom in just a minute. But the Edomites were the most implacable, intractable uh, enemy of israel for centuries they were related because the edomites were descendants of esau the brother of jacob israel and judah come from the line of jacob it's abraham isaac then jacob esau was the the twin brother that was left out of the equation the edomites uh, came from esau and they were uh, they were hostile to israel in every generation and we'll see that in just a minute. But what happens is knowing the Edomites' attitude towards the Israelites, when the Philistines captured an Israelite city, they deported, uh, they they replaced, the, moved all of the people from that captured city and traded them as slaves to Edom, a place that they knew would be... Um, uh, and, and, and terribly hostile and, and produced the death of all those citizens. That was the crime that he has against the Philistines. Now, verse 9. The Lord said, I will not relent from punishing Tyre for three co- crimes, even four. Tyre was the capital city of the Phoenicians. They were uh, coastal people, uh, a seafaring group, uh, the Phoenicians. But he, uh, this is the crime. He says, because they handed over a whole community of exiles to Edom. Well, guess what? That's the same crime. They did the same crime against humanity. Uh, it's saying you take prisoners of war and then you intentionally hand them over to people who you know will torture, abuse, and, and kill them. Not, that's not the rules of war. They broke a treaty of brotherhood, a treaty with Israel that uh, had been established under previous kings. Therefore, I will send fire against the walls of Tyre, and it will consume its citadels. Now, so far, Amos has probably drawn a crowd. You can use your sanctified imagination. He's announcing coming judgment on, on the Arameans. The Israelites hated the Arameans. The Philist- Philistines, they hated the Philistines. The Phoenicians, they knew all of these stories. They knew the crimes that had occurred against Israel by all of these nations. And here is God, the God of Amos, saying, I'm going to judge these nations, and they're going to disappear from the face of the earth. Yeah, amen, come on, preach it, brother. Well, in this circle around Israel, he now moves to nations that are somehow anciently related to Israel. In verse 11, it says, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Edom. Yes. Yes. Edom, descendants of Esau related to Israel, but hostile from from the beginning. In fact, the Edomites, the hostility began when Moses was leading uh was leading the Israelites through the desert and they appealed to the Edomites to let them pass through their territory. We will not harm anything. We will not take anything. We will put everything back just the way it was. We just need safe passage through. This is the shortest route to where we're going. And the Edomites said, no, you can't step foot on our land. And Israel had to take a a detour route and go around Edom. That hostility goes all the way back to the days of Moses. I will not relent from punishing Edom for three crimes, even four, because he pursued his brother with the sword. He stifled his compassion, his anger tore at him continually, and he harbored his rage incessantly. Therefore, I will send fire against Timon, and it will consume the citizens of Bozrah, two of the cities that were common in Edom. Um, Look at the crime against humanity here. He pursued his brother with a sword. Even though they were descendants of Esau, there was in the ancient... In the ancient world, among Semitic peoples, there was a code. And if you were related in any way, I mean, you could be the cousin of your, uh, of your mother's sister's uncle, whatever. If there's any family connection whatsoever, there was an inherent obligation to help somebody along the way. And yet, Edom not only refused to have anything to do with helping Israel, but this is interesting. He stifled his compassion his anger tore at him continually. He harbored his rage incessantly. This is a picture of a people that were uh, perpetually outraged at everybody. Now, we're going to talk about this more specifically next week because the next prophet is the prophet Obadiah, and Obadiah's entire prophecy is directed against Edom. So I'm going to tell you more of the story of Edom and, and why they were the way they were. The next one... Verse 13, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four. Now the Ammonites, if you go back uh, to Second Kings chapter 8, you'll see that they, um, they were regular terrorists who would cross the border "...and attack the border cities of Israel, and basically they decimated the population along the borders, even though, again, there was a distant family connection between Ammon and and Israel. "...I will not relent from punishing the Ammonites for three crimes, even four, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory." They decimated the population by attacking cities, but they went out of their way to find pregnant women and and forcibly uh, cut them open so that the babies were destroyed. Their goal was to eliminate Israel's ability to expand their population all to enlarge their territory. God says, therefore, I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah and it will consume its citadels. There will be shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind on the day of the storm. Their king and his princes will go into exile together. The Lord has spoken again. All of these oracles so far, they're not covenant charges. They're crimes against humanity. As sovereign Lord of the nations, God says there are certain basic standards that humans are expected to uphold. They're not covenant. They're not They're not a a special revelation. They're the basic elements of being human on a planet filled with humans. And God judges them. Chapter 2, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes, even four. Uh, The Moabites, their crime was disrespect uh, for humanity by uh, a violation of the sanctity of a tomb. Look at this. I will not relent from punishing Moab for three crimes even four because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Therefore, I will set fire against Moab and it will consume the citadels of Kiriath. Moab will die with a tumult with shouting and the sound of the ram's horn. I will cut off the judge from the land and kill all its officials with him. The Lord has spoken. Now, this is interesting because the Ammonites were not charged specifically with doing something to Israel. Their charge was, They were, they were so determined in their battles with Edom to, uh, to make a point that they actually, it says, it says burn the bones of the king Delon. What they, what history tells us is they actually violated the tombs of previous kings and brought their bones out and set them on fire. I mean, their rage was such that it wasn't enough to win a battle. They had to violate uh, the sanctity of, of, of a burial place, uh, and, and they behaved in a barbaric manner. And so God says, not acceptable. It's a crime against humanity, and I won't allow it. Verse 4, chapter 2. Now the crowd is, they're, they're right there with, with Amos. Everything he has said so far, they're loving it. They are loving it. These people, they are going to get what they deserve. God is coming. He's going to handle them. They are going to disappear from the face of the earth. Then the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah. Now you can just imagine the crowd. Yes, I knew I'm following this circle. He's going all around us and now he gets to Judah. And man, Judah is the worst of them all. Judah is just, uh, ju- they, they just fight us every step of the way. I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. For the first time, God is not speaking about crimes against humanity. For the first time, because Judah has a different relationship with God from the uh, surrounding nations, this charge is they have violated the covenant that they shared with God. They have ignored His instructions. They have not kept His statutes. Listen, this is a different, this is a different level. I wonder, in my sanctified imagination, I wonder if the crowd is beginning to get a little nervous at this because it's been crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity. Six times, God, the Lord of the nations, I will judge, I will send them into exile, they'll no longer exist as a nation because they've committed crimes against humanity. Now we get to Judah, yes, Judah deserves judgment, but Judah is being judged for covenant violations. What that means is that they weren't extra privileged by being chosen. They actually had extra obligation. They had higher expectation. I wonder if anybody in the crowd thought, uh oh, we've just shifted to covenant. They saw the circle go all the way around, almost like the circle of a target. And sure enough, the crowd is all into it. They're fired up about the message. But then the arrow strikes the bullseye, which was Israel. Look at his eighth oracle. Verse six, chapter two. And this is the longest one. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. That is, they've made human life cheap and they take advantage of the poor and the needy. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. All right, I don't have time to go through each of these charges, but but look at what he's saying. He's saying there 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 is an injustice built into the system. The the rich are taking advantage of the poor. In fact, they're hindering the poor's ability to get out of poverty. They're obstructing the path of the needy. They're practicing uh, the most pagan and heathenistic sexual behavior. A father and his son sleeping with the same girl. Typically, a temple prostitute. He says they stretch out beside every altar... I mean, they go to the temple because they were worshiping pagan fertility gods. Sex was uh, an act of devotion. And God says, I'm horrified by this. That's not what sex was made for. These are false gods. There's a demon behind every idol. And yet you... You act like this is some great act of devotion on your part. Not only are you having sex in the temple next to the altar, but it says you're stretched out on garments taken as collateral. In the Old Testament economy, God had uh, a regulation that you could take a man's outer covering, his coat or his cloak, and you could keep it as collateral, but you had to give it back to him before nightfall so that he wouldn't be cold in, in, in the dark of the night. What they're saying here is they've taken these marks of collateral for financial obligation, but instead of returning them on a daily basis, which was God's requirement, they've kept them and now they're having sex in false temples with temple prostitutes laying down on the garments that belong to somebody else. There's nothing but outrage in the voice of God as he talks about this. They drink wine obtained through fines. The system was built in such a way that the rich continually were soaking the poor in in every avenue by creating an unjust system. Verse 9, Yet I destroyed the Amorite as Israel advanced. His height was like the cedars, and he was sturdy as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. I brought you from the land of Egypt. See, what God is doing is and he's now rehearsing his covenant uh the part of the covenant that he's lived up to throughout the history of Israel. I brought you from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? This is the Lord's declaration. But what did you do? You made the Israelites drink wine and commanded the prophets, do not prophesy. In other words, the the people that God raised up to give guidance and spiritual direction to Israel, Israel abused in every possible way. Look. I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon crushes when full of grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not maintain his strength. And the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself. And the one riding on a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is the Lord's declaration. You see, he announces... That judgment is not only inevitable, it is unavoidable. You cannot get away from it. You can't run fast enough. You can't hide well enough. You can't get far enough away. Thus says the Lord. Wow. I wonder what that crowd looked like now. They'd been cheering the message. <laughs> they loved everything that he was saying. He was now talking about Israel. He's made several points in all these oracles. He's told us that the sovereignty of God is absolute and He is the God of all the nations, not only His chosen people. His tolerance for sin is impartial and limited. His judgment is appropriate in every situation. To Israel, He has a description of uh, uh, the indictments of of the sins that they have committed, along with the details of his coming judgment. They were selling human beings for for a fee, which shows that they had lost their value of human life. Um, the bribes that they were taking were apparently small and insignificant, meaning that that it didn't even take much of anything to entice somebody to abuse the system, to cheat another human being, to, uh, to 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 fix the justice system so that the poor couldn't get justice. It, it, it wasn't even that healthy of a bribe necessary because the system was so uh, broken as it is. They oppressed the needy. They perverted sexual relations. They economically uh, took advantage. This was un, an unjust society from top to bottom. And yet God says, because you have been rebellious i 'm going to bring a judgment and i 'm going to call it the day of the lord and you 're about to find out that it is not at all what you think it is in chapter three he 's going to give his charges he 's going to expand the uh, uh, the testimony god 's going to stand as a witness against israel and uh, and, and and this chapter just um, um, lays out in, in greater detail. The crowd now is excessively uncomfortable. Um, this, this message has gone from preaching to meddling. And, uh, and it, it, it only gets worse. Look at chapter 3. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Wow. They thought that their, that their position as the chosen people meant that they had privileges. That they had the easy road. When God says it's just the opposite. I chose you and with that choosing comes an obligation. Don't you remember when I first met Abraham? And I told him that I would raise up his family to become a mighty nation and through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yet you sit around in your prosperity, you sit around practicing false worship before false idols in false temples and you think that I'm going to be okay with that. I meant for you to be a blessing. You're cheering the judgment of the nations when you have no recognition that the greatest judgment is reserved for you because you had the most privilege by my special revelation. You had the highest uh, opportunity because you were my people. You had the most obligation because I chose you to touch the earth. Drop down to verse 7. Indeed, the Lord does nothing without revealing His counsel to His servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who will not prophesy? There's that image again. They won't listen to Him. He sneaks up like a lion. They're totally unaware. They're unconcerned that He's anywhere around until He roars. And then, paralyzed by fear, then God descends on a nation that will be judged. Look at verse 10. The people are incapable of doing right. He's still talking about Israel. The people are incapable of doing right. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who store up violence and destruction in their citadels. Therefore, the Lord God says, an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. The Lord says, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. What's he talking about? I told you this is about 762 B.C., 722 B.C., the Assyrians come and carry Israel off into exile and they disappear from the pages of history. That's why we call them the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. Here's his picture. You're going to be carried away. You're going to disappear as a nation. But like a shepherd who grabs the ear of his sheep before before the predator takes it away and and he's left holding just the ear. God says, I'm going to save a remnant out of Israel. Won't be much, but it'll be enough to do what I meant to do all along. But for most of you, the day of the Lord is not going to be something that you take great pleasure and joy in. Verse 13 Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. That's Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. Now that's, uh, uh, I like that translation, although the more familiar translation is the Lord of hosts. It refers to the angelic uh, armies of God. Uh, we sing a song called the God of Angel Armies. That's really what this particular name of God means, and it's typically translated the Lord of Hosts. This uh, version, the Christian Standard Bible, translates it the God of Armies. And as long as you understand it, it's the God of Heavenly Armies, uh, it, I, I like this translation. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of Armies. "'I will punish the altars of Bethel, one of the, one of the temples of the false prophets.'" On the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house. The houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. The God of armies has a special judgment on Israel specifically because they have become a pagan nation marked by the worship of false gods. He's going to continue... The next message in chapter 4 continues these charges laid out against Israel. If chapter 3 is the is the chapter that talks about their their uh uh their their spiritual worship being false, chapter 4 you might call it moral affluenza. This is the chapter where he talks about uh Israel having uh specific spiritual problems because they've become so uh financially prosperous that their prosperity has actually caused their morality to decline look at the first five verses of chapter 4 he says listen to this message you cows of bashan now that's the kind of language that a that a, a shepherd or or a farmer would use we're going to find out in this chapter he has taken up uh a spot now this the first two chapters he began to preach and apparently a crowd uh, gathered around him, drawn by this favorable message of judgment to all of these nations that Israel hated anyway, and he pulled the rug out from under them by by zeroing in on the bullseye of God's judgment on Israel. But the the succeeding chapters are are separate sermons at different locations. This was apparently uh, on the steps of one of the false temples as the society crowd came out of church and when he talks about the cows of bashan he's talking about the upper middle upper class women who had become besotted with uh with their luxuries with their uh indolence with their laziness listen to this description and and uh you know uh, cows of bashan it's just one of my favorite uh labels in the entire bible Listen to this message you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria women who oppress the poor and crush the needy who say to their husbands bring us something to drink the image here is they have they have hired help that they don't pay they treat rudely they're, uh, they uh they they don't treat them as human beings they're just they're just disposable pieces for my luxury they say to their husbands bring us something to drink right, we'll come back to that the Lord has, has sworn by His holiness, look, the days are coming when you will be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along toward Harmon. This is the Lord's de- declaration. That imagery, we're told that, um, uh, that the Assyrians, when they transported prisoners, they would take hooks and they would hook them under the skin and the muscle of each person. And so you had this single file uh, line of prisoners, each one hooked front and back to the person in front of them and the person behind them. It was a vicious, godless way to treat human beings. And yet God says, that's what's coming for you. Because the people that he would use to bring judgment were a people that would be just like that. Verse 4, come to Bethel and rebel, rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thank offering and loudly proclaim your free will offerings. For this is what you Israelites love to do. This is the declaration of the Lord God. In other words, keep up your uh, keep up your phony religion. You love to do it. You love to go to church. You love to be seen bringing all of your, your sacrifices, even though you're sacrificing to a God who is not really a God. What you should do is be looking for something that's worthy of who your covenant God is. Instead, you're just going through the motions because it it makes you feel like you're respectable and and, and people admire you. Look at verse 6. I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. In other words, I sent famine Not to be mean, but to try and bring you back to a place where you recognized who you needed to be dependent upon. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you. While there were still three months until harvest, I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain, while the field with no rain withered. He said, "I, I had a selective drought. Why? Not to be mean. But to draw you back to the place where you recognize that your false gods cannot provide for you, there is one solution, and that is the true God. But that didn't get through. Verse 8. Two or three cities staggered to another city to drink water, but were not satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. In other words, what needs to happen to make Israel desperate enough to find their way home spiritually? Verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew. The locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees, yet you did not return to me. I allowed natural disaster to come in because I'm just trying to get you to the place where you call out to the one actual source of help. Verse 10, I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I caused the stench of your camp to fill your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire. Here's the chorus. Yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. What God is saying here is I did everything I could do. First, God, this is God's typical pattern. First, I blessed you. I gave you excessive blessings hoping that gratitude would draw you back to me. That didn't work. You took it all and you sacrificed it to false gods as though they were the source of your blessings. So I began to withdraw blessings. I gave you famine. I gave you drought. I gave you war. I gave you disease, not to be mean, but as a discipline so that you would say, wow, those gods that we credited with those blessings now can't solve the, the problem that we have with, with these curses. We need to find the God who can help us. You remember, God comes down in the time of Moses and he says, I've heard the cries of my people and I've come down to, to free them from slavery, from their oppression, It's the same God. They knew all the stories. And yet, even the withdrawal of blessings doesn't bring Israel to their senses. Okay. Prosperity didn't work. Disaster didn't work. Verse 12. Therefore, Israel, this is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here, the One who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals His thoughts to man. The One who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is His name. (sighs) Listen, if you're right with God, then that statement, prepare to meet your God, is is, is sweetness itself. There have been many times I've said at the... The bedside of someone who, who is about to pass into the next life. And it's a remarkable thing if you've never been with somebody who's, who's passed from death, I mean, from life into death. They're there, they're breathing, the body is, sometimes it's labored, and then, and then it's over. And when I've been beside those beds of people who knew the Lord to say, prepare to meet your God, their response is, thank you, Jesus. They've suffered. They've been through agony. It is a sweet thought that I can finally close my eyes and I can meet my God. That's not at all what's going on in this chapter of Amos. Israel has rejected God. They've rejected his words. They've rejected his overtures to draw them back. They've they've taken his blessings for granted. They've ignored his judgments. And so the statement is, Israel, here's what I have to say to you. Prepare to meet your God. This day of the Lord that's coming, you think that that's for all the nations around and that you're going to avoid judgment because you're somehow chosen? Let me tell you something. The day of the Lord is meant precisely for you. Prepare to meet your God. It is an ominous statement that the prophet makes here. Well, real quickly, I want you to see the final opportunity that's presented in chapter 5. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. It says, For the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel or go to Gilgal or journey to Beersheba. Those are all sites of the false temples to the to the Baal gods. Don't journey to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into exile and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will spread like fire through the house of Joseph. It will consume everything, with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. "...those who turn justice into wormwood and also throw righteousness to the ground." the one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it over the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. He brings destruction on the strong and it falls on the fortress. Listen, you're worshiping idols that can't do anything for you. Come back to the God who draws water up and waters the earth with it, who brings the darkness to its side and the sun rises in the dawn, who makes the day end as it passes into night. The God who hung the stars in the skies don't you want a God who can actually make a difference in your life but instead they hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate and they despise the one who speaks with integrity is that not our culture they hate the one who convicts the guilty and they despise the one who speaks with integrity man starting to hit home now Verse 11, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact a grain tax from him, you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built. You will never drink the wine from the lush vineyards you have planted. For I know your crimes are many and your sins innumerable. They oppress the righteous, take a bribe, and deprive the poor of justice at the city gates. Therefore, those who have insight will keep silent at such a time, for the days are evil. Well go to chapter 6. In this chapter there is a call to those who are doing nothing. In the first 3 verses of chapter 6, he says woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. The notable people in this first of the nations that the house those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Calna and see go from there to greet Hamath, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is your territory larger Is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss every thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence here 's the thing because of their chosenness, because they recognized that they had a unique history. they had come out of uh, the loins of Abraham, they had been saved under the leadership of Moses from four hundred and thirty years of slavery. They had this sense of superiority toward everybody else. But their trust in their own chosenness was a misplaced trust because the the reality was it was never their chosenness that made them special. It was that they had a particular relationship with the true God. They've left God and trusted in their status and that has produced a false security, a shallow optimism that is founded on some idea that, that they're just too special for anything bad to happen. The great nations of the world will, will fall away. They'll be judged. But Israel, Israel will last forever. I mean, they were as patriotic as they could be. Israel's the greatest nation on the earth. You just wait and see. And God says, go down to these other cities. Look at these other nations. Are you any better than them? I mean, you practice the same things. You don't even have as much territory. Your cities aren't even as impressive. Where do you get this false security that you're somehow better than everybody else? No, in fact, when I've removed my blessings, you're not even equal to the world around you. Much less better. And yet you have this mindset That you're somehow special and nothing bad's going to happen. Well, let me tell you, false security produced indulgent living. Look at verse 4. It says, they lie on beds. He's back to the cows of Bashan, particularly talking about the women. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. He says, they live in houses furnished with the most luxurious furniture. I mean excessive consumption was the mark of this generation. He says they only eat lambs and calves. The the veal, the, the tenderest, the most expensive cuts. That's their menu. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowl full and anoint themselves with the finest oils. That is... They, 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 the picture is of these large bowls that were used to serve wine and you would dip a cup in the bowl. The image here is, is they're so, uh, they're so indulgent that they just lift up the bowl and they drink from the very bowl itself. They, they anoint themselves with the finest oils. They are spoiled rotten. Yeah but they do not grieve over the ruin of joseph therefore they will now go into exile as the first of the captives and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end you see this uh, they had excessive comforts they had excessive leisure they had excessive appetites but they had insufficient repentance And so, their misplaced trust gave them a false security. Their false security led to indulgent living. And as night follows day, indulgent living produces divine judgment. Look at verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by Himself. Now, that's a powerful statement. There is nothing that God can swear by other than Himself. And when He does that, It's as if you and I said, man, as long as I live, I'm going to do this. Well, God is eternal. It's as if he says, as long as I live, this is my attitude. The Lord God has sworn by himself. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride and I hate his citadels. So I will hand over the city and everything in it. Well, you can imagine why in chapter 7 we've already seen Amaziah's opposition. His messages have now gotten to the place where they're ready to kick him out of the country. They don't want to hear him anymore. But I want—I I don't want us to, to finish until we look at, at a couple of verses in chapter 8 and a couple of verses in chapter 9. Because I said, if you read this book, nine chapters of Amos, what you'll find is a, an amazing relevancy to, to the year 2020 in the United States of America. I think the USA is in a period of early judgment. And I think it's a it's it's a passive judgment where God has taken, taken something away. And he is letting the affairs of society run its course. What we're seeing right now in our nation is what we saw in the book of Judges. Every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. There are no standards. There are no expectations. We rebel against every um, every baseline, every measuring stick. Nobody wants to be held accountable for anything. But in chapter 8... The, the, the verses that I want you to hear, because I believe this is precisely where, where America is. In verses, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 8, God says, this is going to be the beginning of judgment. Now the end of judgment is Israel carried off by the Assyrian Empire into exile and disappearing into history. But we're 40 years from that day. This is the beginning of judgment. And this is what he says. Look. The days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Listen, Amos uses that phrase over and over and over. He wants us to know he's not making this up. This is not his idea. He is saying precisely what the God who roars from on high has said. He's delivering the message he was given to deliver. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a famine, the, the, the days are coming. When I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. What he's suggesting here is that when you have ignored God's presentation of himself, When you have ignored the opportunity to return in repentance to the God who pursues you, when you have ignored the announcements of justice from His Word, when you've ignored God long enough, what He does is He steps back. He makes his word rare and difficult to find. And he leaves a culture to self-destruct of its own free will. Folks, I believe that that's exactly where we are as a nation right now. You cannot imagine. There's hardly a Sunday that goes by. Uh, that is when we actually meet together in this room. Um, I would say three Sundays out of every four, I'll have a first-time guest, somebody who's here the very first time, who will come up to me at the end of the service and say, thank you for preaching from the Bible. We have visited church after church after church after church across this city, and we can't find... A biblically sound message from God. And I go, oh, how is that possible? How is it possible? This is Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is the buckle of the Bible belt. This is the capital the world capital of Pentecostalism. This is a stronghold of evangelicalism. There are 166 Southern Baptist churches alone, probably 800 churches of all stripes and colors uh, in this city. We're, we're, we've got churches on every street corner. How can you not find a biblical message? Why is nobody actually preaching the Word of God? I believe that God has said, you've ignored it, Now, I pull back and I make it excessively difficult to find. The verse in chapter 8 says that young men and women will stagger from sea to sea looking for a word that gives them truth. That's where we are. What that means is that if we're going to see the Spirit of God move in spiritual awakening in our nation, in our generation, we'd like to say, well, there's there's a million churches in this country. If we could just muster them all to prayer. If we could cry out to God for spiritual awakening, we could say, well, there's 800 churches in in the city of Tulsa alone. If we could just muster them all to prayer. No, the fact of the matter is there may be 800 church buildings in Tulsa. But if the reality of a church that is following Jesus Christ, if that's based on the significance of the Word of God as the foundation for what they do, then the fact of the matter is, there are not 800 churches in Tulsa. In fact, it's becoming just a handful. What does that mean? It means, by God, if we're going to see spiritual awakening, that handful of churches better be about the business of crying out to the one true God. You see, we live in a culture that has, you can't even really debate with people from the Bible anymore. Because our culture has now decided that the Bible is not a source of authority. It doesn't judge us. It doesn't have any relevance to us. And so, just like I suspect with Amos in Israel, he finished almost every pronouncement with these words. This is the Lord's declaration. And yet his audience in Israel kind of yawned and went about their business because that didn't carry any weight with them The same way in our culture that you say this is what the Bible says. This is why we don't do this. This is why we can't do this. This is why this will destroy us as a nation. We have standards. God's Word has given us a revelation of the right way that human beings are to relate to each other. The right way that we're to relate with God. The right way we're meant to live. And our culture yawns and goes about its business. Listen. I saw a meme the other day that said, Life is short, so be sure and argue with as many total strangers on the Internet as you can. Here's my advice. We've got to do social media and television less. And we've got to do prayer and justice more. More. For the people who are called Evergreen, it sounds a little arrogant to the ears of our culture if they heard me say this. And I don't mean it arrogantly. I mean it brokenheartedly. But if you find the Word of God to still be available in this place among this family, what that tells us is That, what little chance there is for spiritual awakening in our generation, it starts with us. Will we cry out to God so that in our generation He will come down from on high, see the oppression of our day? And by his spirit, begin to move in the hearts of men one more time. Read chapter 9, because chapter 9, like all of the prophets, no matter how serious the announcement of judgment, there's always hope. And in chapter 9, God says, But if you come to me, I will relent, I'll receive you to myself, I'll make you my people. And you will be blessed. Let us pursue that blessing, recognizing that we are God's people, that we still have the opportunity of God's Word in a generation where that opportunity is increasingly rare and difficult to come by. And let us become the amoses of our generation, following the God of armies, Crying out to Him in the hope that He will relent and draw our nation back to Him. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.